it's, it's as, you, as we read the scriptures, and I, I'm always struck by how one, in one week the city of Jerusalem was praising Jesus and calling him their king, and a week later, because he wasn't the king that they wanted or they were looking for, they were yelling, crucify him. Um, it's just an, a crazy picture, but that whole Passion Week, uh, actually, if you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the most of the Gospels are actually focused on the last week of Jesus. And so uh, we are looking at a little piece of that, his crucifixion in chapter 19 this morning. Uh, but a very important piece. We want to contemplate the cross. Um, but let me, before we dive in, let me pray and, um, and just ask the Spirit to ignite His Word. Okay? Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for Your book that tells us about Your Son who gave His life for us. Father, each of us come to this place with a whole bunch of needs that I have no, I'm, not, I'm not aware of, but you are. And Father, I pray that you'd breathe life into each of us. Would you speak to each of us as, as, um, as only you can? May the words on the page come alive in our soul and our heart and transform and change us. Would we have an encounter with Jesus? Would you allow us to see Jesus, to, to know Him, to, to be wowed by Him, and to be changed by Him? Lord, would you do that work as we contemplate the cross? In your name we pray. Amen. Just, an, just a reminder, those sign-up sheets at the back um, for, for food and all that, remember to do that, but if not, we'll, we'll get it on, an, on email this week. Um, and the clipboard is not there for... Uh, membership interviews just come and talk to me if you'd like uh, I'm going to be we'll be making calls it is there now oh thanks Rebecca I'm, I'm glad uh, this church isn't dependent upon me uh, that's a good thing really good thing really good thing so this week Tuesday um, I made the, the road trip to Vauxhall my hometown to go see my dad Lynn came with, and my two of my brothers showed up uh, that morning and or that afternoon, and and we 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 discussed some things that are are kind of kind of things that are difficult to discuss but important to discuss. And um, as we're wrestling with, and my dad is wrestling with, how does he move off the old place and um, take that next step in life? And that's a hard thing. He built that house and all of those things, and. Uh, difficult for him, difficult for us to have to address it, and etc. But praise be to God, uh, I think we've we've got a plan, and and it's good to be with family and and work through those things. I'm thankful for for a godly family. And I think it was either before or after the, that conversation, my oldest brother and I, uh, we don't always see eye to eye in Scripture, but we both love Jesus, and. And he was quoting from Psalm 103. And he has this, he has this really incredible ability just to, to, to remember 
scripture and he just quotes it. I, I, I have a harder time at that. But he was quoting this. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. And, and my brother was trying to encourage me that, that God was going to heal my wife. And, um, and I say, yeah, he certainly can. No, he says, no, he will because of this verse. And um, it, was just, it, was just, it was a good conversation and a fascinating conversation. We, 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 we wrestled with that. But as, we, as he was quoting Psalm 103 and talking about it, my dad piped up. And my dad says, I know that psalm. He said we would sing that psalm almost week after week after week. And, and we, we looked at him and we go, well, in what way? And he said, he says, when we were growing up in the Netherlands during the war, it seems almost like on a weekly occurrence we were burying one of my classmates because of disease and everything else. And as we gathered around the, the graves, we would sing this psalm. And he says, it's not just those verses, he says, you've got to remember. And then my dad quoted, because he remembered what, what he had sung so many years ago. My dad quoted these words, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. He said they sung that as they buried his classmates. Like that was such a significant thing. It, it was seared into his, his heart and his mind. And my dad would have been somewhere between 7 and 14 when these things were happening. Those are significant. And so here's this great psalm. It says, He, he who forgives your iniquity and heals all your diseases it, it also says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve rebel, and we're told that because of Adam's sin, death came to all of us, and, and in, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, there's this common refrain, and he died, and he died. You've, you've heard me say this. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And that's just reality. And my dad, my dad lived that as a young age. I haven't had to face that, but my dad did. And I think he was, he, 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 he was he'll be 87 next week. And he would say that 87 is like a... The grass of the field, it just kind of disappears. It, 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 it's quick. And you say, well, why are you saying all of that? Because when we get to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And so we're introduced to Jesus, and Jesus is who? He's God. He's the guy who created the heavens and the universe. And he shows up in this world. And you go, he's not going to die. He's God, right? And then last week we talked about how he was determined to go to the cross. 
And this week we're going to see how he was unjustly murdered. He was butchered. That's what happened in in, in John chapter 19. That's what we're going to remember on Good Friday. So they took Jesus, the text says. Who's they? Well, Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and Pilate, and of course his Roman soldiers. They took Jesus, and where did they take Him to? They took Him outside the city, carrying His own cross to the place called the the place of the skull. We're not exactly sure why they called it the place of the skull. Maybe because of the stuff that happened there. Uh, Maybe because of what it looked like. Uh, But regardless, it's not a very good name. The place of the skull called Golgotha. I think all of the, the, uh, the writers in the Gospels mention this place. And there they crucified him. Crucifixion was ugly. Ugly. And and the Romans made it ugly because they didn't want people to get out of hand. And so they would carry the crossbeam after they had been beaten. And Jesus, unlike the others, had been beaten twice. That's why... He, he finally stumbled and couldn't carry it. And that's probably why he died early along with the fact that he was burying the sins of the world that you and I cannot can't understand. But, but, but when he got to the place, they would lay his arms out on this thing and they would nail his hands. Sometimes they tied, but typically they nailed. And then when they raised the thing into place, it, it would drop into the hole and it would go thump. And it would tear. And, and then the goal was to make it as painful and as excruciating as, as possible. And so they stuck actually a little, a little block of wood under their feet. And that was so that they would live longer. So that they would fight death. And so that they would lift themselves up on these nails so that they could get a breath. And then there was the pain was so excruciating they had to crumble back down, but then they had to pull themselves back up so they could get another breath. And they'd fight for air and fight for life. And, and sometimes they would, in grace, they would offer them a little bit of a, a myrrh, that, kind of a vinegar with myrrh, so that there would be a little bit like alcohol in their system. Jesus turned that down, actually. So he would bear all the pain. And this would go on sometimes for hours in the hot sun. But on top of that, they would humiliate the person on the cross by gambling for their clothes. The soldiers, actually, part of their, part of maybe one of their bonuses was they got the clothes of the criminal. And that's what's happening here. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side. These two others were told were thieves, were criminals. So they took Jesus. 
But did they take Jesus or did God take Jesus? Remember last week we talked about what the the early church cried out in Acts chapter 4? As they prayed for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so last week we talked about how clear, how it was so clear that it was Jesus who goes to the cross willingly. Like he goes there willingly, knowing what is about to take place. And we're told in Acts that it was predetermined. This was the plan that God had, had, had said was going to happen. And remember last week, John chapter 18, as, as they come to, to take Jesus away to trial, remember how Jesus says, I am, not once, but twice. And when he says that, they draw back and they fall to the ground as if they've been confronted with God. Unwillingly do that, and yet they get back up and they take him to trial and then to be crucified. So they took Jesus. But I want you to notice, as we walk through this story, and it is ugly, and it's meant to be ugly. I want you to see Jesus. And I want you to see God is in charge. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And actually it spends several verses talking about this, this little plaque that was above Jesus. And the reason he spends some time on that is because I think it's significant. Uh, What we know from history, Pilate wasn't doing this because he believed Jesus was the king of the Jews. And he wasn't doing this to please the Jews. He was was, um, somewhat malicious in doing this to get at the Jews. And, And so he says... He puts it up there, and, and, the, and they come, the chief priests come to him and say, don't put that up there. Just simply say that that's what he said he was. Pilate goes, what I have written, I have written. But it's interesting, Pilate, I think, unknowingly and unwittingly, actually declares to the world in three different languages, this is the king of the Jews. This is the anointed one. And I think God's going, you know what, I'm in charge, and and and. This is who he is. And whether you like it or not, Pilate, you're going to declare who he is. Caiaphas, the high priest who wanted to kill Jesus, doesn't he do something similar? We're told in in, uh, Acts chapter, um, in uh, John chapter 18, where he says it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Caiaphas is thinking, let's kill him. And he goes, well, it's, it's really good if one guy dies for the people. And as he's doing that, he's actually prophesying for the Lord that this is why he came. Do you see God's hand? Now, now, now bring that to your world. Uh, bring that to my dad's world. The, the ugliness of war and therefore um, malnutrition and all the diseases that would have come with that, put a lot of his classmates in the ground. 
And yet somehow God in his grace and his sovereignty will turn that into good. He's got some type of plan. Like he's, he's at work even in those, in those settings, in those situations. And we see that here. At the pivotal moment in history, we see that God is at work even though humanity is at work doing its evil. We're told in verse 23 that the soldiers actually fulfill the plan of God. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. So there was four soldiers that were involved in the crucifixion. One probably got his headgear. One probably got his belt. One probably got his outer garment. One probably got his sandals. But then there was this undergarment. And it was all one piece. And they were like, okay, well, should we cut the thing up? And they go, no, let's gamble for it. And as they are with probably no thought to who this person is hanging on the tree above them. They're gambling for his clothes, his undergarments. And we're told the Scriptures tell us that this has happened because it was to fulfill the Scriptures which says in Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. You see how God, his hand was already at work so long ago, actually saying this is what's going to happen. He was already planning, had it planned, foreshadowing what was about to take place. I hope that encourages your soul. It gives us a different perspective to look at pain in our world. I think it's interesting that they're gambling for his undergarments because in John chapter 13, it's the last time we, we hear about Jesus' garments. We're told in John chapter 13, knowing that Judas was about to betray him and knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, we're told he got up at the supper table. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In that culture, the slaves did that. In that culture, a servant. If you didn't have a slave, a servant would do that. But the master of the house would not wash the feet of those around them. And Peter understood that. So when Jesus gets to Peter in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to them, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What am I doing? What I'm doing you do not understand now, but after you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And the next time the Lord's garments are mentioned in the Gospel of John is they are gambling for those garments so that He will be hanging on a cross in humiliation and shame. And the last time He took off any garments was He humbles Himself and becomes a servant. And, and He's hanging on that cross so that Peter and Silas can be clean. That's what He's doing. You see how this, this book is so tied together? It's incredibly beautiful. Now, 
so in the midst of this incredible ugliness and pain and horror and murder, and you, you can do whatever you want, like just, you get the picture, right? God in his all-knowingness is showing us that Jesus will humble himself for us so that we might be clean. Now, look at what else happens. As he's hanging there, we're told, by the cross of Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister Mary and Mary Magdalene. I guess the name back then was Mary, right? And verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, he said to his mother, woman. That's not how he said it. It, it, It's weird, isn't it? You read that and you go, man, how can you talk to mom like that? But but understand in that culture, actually, it was was a much gentler, more of a term of endearment. uh, um, Woman, mom. And he looks at his disciple John, the youngest of all the disciples, and he says, behold your son. Now now we think that John was actually a, a, I guess, a step-cousin of Jesus. So this makes sense. And he trusted John. But he says, behold your son. And I'm, I'm astounded. Here's Mary watching her son who has been brutally beaten with a whip. Now is nailed to this thing. He's, he's, he's in excruciating pain. And she's standing there probably horrified at what she is seeing and not understanding what's going on. And, her, and his disciple John doesn't get it because a week ago they were they were calling him king and now he's crucified he's dying and he doesn't understand it even though jesus prepared the way and told them he still doesn't get it and in that context we see we see jesus with compassion one one of my my good friends um uh, after Lynn's surgery three years ago, we're so amazed that she's Lynn's doing so well. But that moment in our history was 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 significant, and and um, and this friend of mine comes up to me. He was in the hospital, and, and things looked really kind of bleak at the moment. And he says, "I'm I'm I've been I've been pondering the gospels, and and I've noticed that often when Jesus does a miracle." we're told that he had compassion on the people. And it was out of that compassion that he heals. And that's all he said. He, he, he didn't say anything outside of that, but I just, for me, it was just like, you know what? This is probably one of the darkest moments in my history, in my life, and, and, and I needed to hear the that Jesus loves me. I, I probably need to just hear that song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, for the Bible tells me so. I won't sing it for you, okay, because you guys will run. But here you have this incredible compassion of Christ. And I think John puts that there because 
he wants us to see that in the midst of this, what's driving Jesus to the cross is his intense love for us. Do not overlook that. Did you hear that? What's driving Jesus to the cross is this intense love for us. And that love is shown as he shows compassion to his mom who's got to be hurting right now. I can't imagine one of my kids was going through something like this or anything remotely close to this. Incredible compassion. And that's Psalm 103, that, that, that passage about God's bless the Lord, O my soul. He who forgives all our iniquity and heals our, all our diseases. And it, it, where it goes, and man's days are like grass, but it goes, verse the next two verses later, it says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Oh, those are good words. And so in the midst of this ugliness, there is compassion. That's my Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus that will put, put a spring in my step, a joy in my heart, and make me want to get up tomorrow. That's, that, that's the Jesus. Time to go, and we're not even done. Let's keep going. Look at Jesus' words. We've got to see these. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing all, that, all that, was, that, that all was now finished, he, he knew this, said, in order to fulfill the Scriptures again, remember, there's this ongoing plan, he simply says, I thirst. Those words are significant, I think, because the last time I remember them in the Gospel of John is Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he says, well, let's read John chapter 4, um, verse 10 and verse 13. Just listen to what Jesus says. He says to this woman who's trying to find satisfaction from all these different guys, he simply says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then in verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the water from the well. But then he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. <laughs> and, and, and now he's saying, I'm thirsty well, he's the one with the water. What's he saying? I, I think there's a picture there that at that point in, 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 his, in, in his moment in history, his father had turned his back on him. For us. So that we could have water. So yes, he was thirsty, physically thirsty, but there's more going on than that. And then what does he say? doesn't say a lot on the cross, does he? But verse 30, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally, it has come to the end. It, uh, my work has been accomplished. I'm done. I've, I've completed what I came here for. 
and then he dies. Wow. Now before he dies, there's a significant moment. They, they give him something to drink, and this time he drinks of it. And this time it's just vinegar. It's not vinegar mixed with alcohol. He, it's just vinegar. But they put it on a sponge and they stick the sponge on this hyssop plant. Do you, have you ever, like, as you're reading up through the Bible, did you, did you notice the hyssop plant? Exodus chapter 12. Passover. The Israelites are about to be freed. And they have to slaughter a lamb. And they have to take the blood from the lamb and they're just to sprinkle it along on the, on the doorpost outside their home and, and with the blood of the lamb. And if they're inside the house, then when the angel of death comes by, anybody in that house will be spared, will be saved. And now this hyssop plant shows up again. And what's Jesus doing? Beginning of John, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's Jesus and this hyssop plant. And the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John wants us to look at Jesus and contemplate the cross and go, oh my goodness, this is Him. This is the one who's going to make me clean. This is the one who's going to forgive my sins. This is the one who has compassion. That's why He's doing this. I've got two more hours worth, but I'm going to wrap it up. the very end did you notice how they who buries Jesus Joseph of Arimathea and this guy named Nicodemus I, I think that's I, I maybe I'm conjecturing too much but I just find that incredibly hopeful you see in John chapter 3 Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews comes to Jesus by night because he's scared but he wants to know a few things, and he doesn't get it. He does, it doesn't sink in. He doesn't understand this, this, what Jesus is talking about. You must be born again. It doesn't register with him. And yet he's bold enough to come and take the body of Christ with Joseph of Arimathea and bury our Lord. And, and I wonder if at the death of Christ and in the burial of Christ, the Spirit of God was igniting the words that Christ had told Nicodemus and he was beginning to understand. I, I don't know, but I find hope that Nicodemus is in the story again. And of course, chapter 20 is filled with hope. Easter Sunday's coming. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose three days later, never to die again. What do we do with this? I'll tell you what we should do with this. We should be flat on our faces saying, thank you, Jesus. What do we do with this? I, I tell you what we should do with this. We should say, Jesus, I want to know you more. Would you let me understand and know who you are? I'm going to dig through this book and learn. What do we do with this? We tell people.
Because is there better news? I don't think so. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you willingly go to the cross on our behalf. Thank you. Thank you. You you were motivated by a compassion that just otherworldly. Thank you that you went to extreme measures to stop the common refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and now to give us hope. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for your work, that it is finished, it is accomplished. There's nothing more that needs to be added to it. All our good works doesn't make it better. You did everything that needs to be done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. I don't